This morning we'll be in Galatians 3. I'm going to try to finish the chapter this morning. If I don't, somehow it won't be my fault. Uh, just a couple of quick announcements before we get underway. Um, we're shortening service just a bit by removing our last song this week. So immediately after I finish preaching, um, we're going to conclude our worship service by installing our two deacons. So um, don't leave. Stay and participate because then after that, after worship, the whole service is over, um, we'll have a few updates for you and announcements on what's going on with the plant and the plan going forward, including apparently I made a, 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 what ended up sounding like an alarming remark last week, but Cecil is going to talk about the need to find somewhere else for us to all meet together. Because um, as you can see, we haven't even started and we're, we're at capacity. So uh, let me pray and then we'll read in Galatians 3. <clears throat> Father, we do thank you for giving us your son and, and then sending your spirit so that we could read and understand your word and rightly apply it to our lives. This morning, as we move into this time of the ministry of your word, we would pray and ask, Holy Spirit, that you would move in, in each of us through me as I speak and through all of these as they listen, that... Um, Whatever we come in here knowing or believing about you um, would be enhanced or changed, if necessary, by what your word says. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would make us yield to your will through your word. Um, there's nothing magical that I can do or say. There's no illustration I can give that's going to change anybody's heart um, but if you, Spirit, would move in our midst, you can change hearts. And Jesus, you can change lives. So we ask that you would do that. Father, may you be glorified by what we're doing. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> um, last week, we pretty much left off at verse 18. Um, so... We spent most of the morning looking at what Abraham did, which brought about his justification. Justification, as you all now know, is the one-time declaration by God that a sinner is righteous because they have faith in Christ. Um, what, what that means is that there's a... There, there's a, a legal tone to the idea of justification. This is not um, to say that it's impractical, but it's not so much practical righteousness as it is. Picture a courtroom where you are standing as the accused and God, who's the judge because he's the lawmaker and the law upholder, while you've been accused of sin, God the judge declares lawfully that you're righteous. And the reason that he declares that you're righteous is because 
all of the sin for which you are guilty has been taken from you and placed on his son in whom that sin was punished forever on the cross. So this declaration that you're righteous is made by the only one who can make such a declaration and it's made possible by the only one who could make such a declaration possible. We are acquitted of guilt that is, practically speaking, very much our guilt because it was taken from us and put onto Jesus Christ who was then punished for those sins that we had done. So in Abraham's case, what we saw that he did, which brought about his justification, was very simple. In Genesis 15, it says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. That's what he did. So let's, just so that we're really, really clear about this. What did Abraham do that caused him to be counted righteous? He believed. believed. That was it. It wasn't when he took Isaac up Mount Moriah and almost sacrificed him in a dramatic display of obedience to God. It was when God said at the age of almost 100, Abraham, your offspring are going to outnumber the stars, and Abraham believed him. Now, built into that promise that Abraham's offspring would outnumber the stars or the sand on the seashore is this idea that there would be one particular offspring from the line of Abraham who would redeem people from their sin and be a blessing to all the nations. We believe, rightly, biblically, that that person who came from the line of Abraham was Jesus Christ. So earlier when I said your sins, if you believe the gospel, were taken from you and placed on Christ, what we're seeing there is the effective fulfillment of the promise that God made to Abraham. In your offspring, all the nations will be blessed means in the person and work of Jesus Christ, sinners will have the ability to be in communion with God. I've made the case since the beginning of Galatians that what, we, what we're faced with as a result of our intellectual comprehension of the gospel and our heartfelt faith in Jesus Christ, what we're faced with is the possibility of veering off into one of two errors. On the one side, we have the error of licentiousness, which is basically, I can do whatever I want because it doesn't matter because God will forgive me because Jesus paid for it. An attitude of flippant indifference to the righteousness that God has imputed to our account is not Christianity. That's licentiousness. And it takes you out of relationship with Jesus Christ to think that way and behave that way. On the other side, you have the, the chasm or the pit of legalism, which is to say it's actually through my keeping of the law, through my upholding of everything that God has commanded, that I am made righteous. Well, you cannot be depending on Jesus' righteousness and your own simultaneously. So legalism, like licentiousness, takes you out of relationship with Christ and makes you dependent on your own works. Both of these things lead to death. The alternative to error is relationship with Jesus. To prove this point, that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, and so must we, 
Paul took us on a little timeline journey where he said, look, Abraham believed God at this point in the timeline. And then Paul seems to intimate that 430 years later came the law. I sat down this week and did the math, which I've never done before in my study of Galatians. And I just want to let you know, because I'm sure there's a legalist in our midst who would do the same thing and then say that I've misinterpreted or misapplied, or Paul has misinterpreted and misapplied the scripture. It was actually 635 years after Abraham believed the promise, and it was counted to him as righteousness, that Moses went up on Mount Sinai and received the commandments on tablets of stone. So why does Paul say 430 years later? Well, his point is, regardless of 430 or 635, Abraham believed and it was counted to him as righteousness. Centuries later came the law. Does this which came later supersede this which came earlier? No. And then he goes on to make this point. The law came through an intermediary. That's Moses. So God gave the law to Moses, who then gave the law to the people. The covenant, the promise, came directly from God to Abraham. Now, I don't know about you as a parent. This is how I operate. If I have something unimportant that I want accomplished by one of my children who's not in the room, I send one of my children who is in the room to inform the child who's not in the room of what it is that I want accomplished. I send an intermediary because it's not as important to me. If it is important to me, I go and I find the offspring and I tell them personally what I want from them or what I need from them or what I expect of them. Does that make sense? So part of what Paul's doing is he's saying, look, how important is the law if God couldn't be bothered to tell the people it on his own, that he went through an intermediary? You should start getting uncomfortable right about now because I'm basically insinuating that the law doesn't matter. It's not all that important. Well, the good news is, once you reach the place where you go, well, if we're not justified by keeping the law, then what's the point of the law? You are perfectly in step with Galatians, because if you look at verse 18, 19 rather, I know where I'm at, Paul asks this question, why then the law? And then he answers it. It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Romans 5 and Romans 7 will help us understand what's going on here, so we're going to look at a couple of other passages. Flip back in your Bible to Romans chapter 5. It's not going to be a significant distance. It's maybe 35 or 40 pages depending on how big your Bible is. Romans 5, we're going to pick it up in verse 12. Therefore, Romans 5, 12, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, that's Adam, Adam sinned, fundamentally changed the nature of all mankind. Sin came into the world through Adam and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin, indeed, was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Now, if you do what I do when I'm listening to uh, a mediocre preacher, I tune out at various times during the sermon and think about things far more important to me in that moment. 
if you just did that, I'm going to ask you to tune back in because we're going to work through Romans 5, 12 through 14, very diligently here, but very quickly. Who is still alive on the earth from the beginning of time? What human being is still alive on the earth from the beginning of time? I would venture to guess most of us don't even have great grandparents alive on the earth, right? So the answer is nobody from the beginning of time because they're all dead. dead. Right. Very good. Uh, what killed everyone? I actually had to write these questions down uh, because that's how easily distracted I am. What killed everyone and what will ultimately kill us? Um, you guys are amazing. So that's verse 12. All right. Good job. Verse 13. Did sin exist before the law was given? Oh, that's what it says. For sin, indeed, was in the world before the law was given. Okay, good. That was an easy one. Uh, next question. How do we know that sin was in the world before the law was given? Well, if there was no law, there could be no sin. That's what, he, that's what he communicates here. If there were no law, there would be no sin. How does that tell us that sin existed before the law was given? Well, sin was being counted. How do we know sin was being counted? There's no one alive on the earth from the beginning of time. Why? They're dead. Why? Because they sinned. But there was no law in the beginning. Yeah, there was. Just hadn't been written on tablets of stone yet. So we know that sin was being counted because people were dying. Oh, by whom was sin being counted? By capital W-H-O-M was sin being counted? By God. Because God does not need the law written on tablets of stone in order to know what sin is. We do. But he doesn't. So, did the law exist even before the law was given to Moses? Yes. yes. Did the law being given through Moses increase the lawfulness of the law? No, it did not. What did the law being given through Moses accomplish? Yep. It made us more aware of what God's law is. Romans 7. Verse 7, what then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had, had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. When COVID-19 was first released on the population by the deep state, <laughs> I was uh, so glad that I'd had the presence of mind to accumulate 
substantial amount of survival supplies. I have enough filtration devices that I can make 500,000 gallons of drinking water while I'm constructing my still. <laughs> we live within minutes of good hunting, so my family's not going to starve. And no one's going to harm us because I have enough guns to defend us. And we can keep a 24-hour watch at my house because there's enough people in my family. So I wasn't too worried. The one thing I didn't have was masks. Like a fool, I had neglected to accumulate respirators and KN95 masks. Masks were the only thing I was missing, and they could not be found within days of this whole thing happening. Masks were all I wanted. I needed masks. It took some doing, but I was able to source some within about a week of uh, two weeks to flatten the curve starting. Um, and as we waited with bated breath for two weeks to flatten the curve to end, I was ready to get back to day-to-day -day life because I would be safe with my gloves and my masks. However, as I began to research coronaviruses using extremely reputable websites like truthpatriottrumpforemperor.com and... Um, don't tread on me, Second Amendment, Confederate flag.org. I grew suspicious about the efficacy of masks against coronaviruses. I hope you all know that I'm kidding, but I'm mocking people who did that. By the end of April, though, I, I had abandoned the use of masks altogether. I didn't see any reason for wearing them anymore, but I certainly didn't mind anybody else wearing them, and I would happily wear one out of consideration if somebody needed me to. Then the mask mandates started coming out. Yeah. <laughs> and the instant we were told we had to wear masks, I found myself more willing to breathe pure coronavirus <laughs> than wear a mask or put anything over my face because sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me rebellion and sin of all kinds in my heart. I stood before the Papillion City Council and called them all unconstitutional dictators. I literally pointed at them and said that they were opposed to freedom. Now, Sharing this story may cause you to reconsider your desire to have me as your pastor, but I'm illustrating a point regarding the law. Was I morally opposed to masks before the law? No. No. What changed? Somebody told me I had to wear one. That's what changed. And, you know, I'm stressing that to make a point, but the law came in and I hated it. As a parent, if you're a mom or a dad, isn't this true? When you have a three-year-old in the house, you have to be kind of strategic about how you tell them not to do stuff. And the reason you have to be strategic is you're creating a curiosity in your child every time you give them an edict to obey. A three-year-old doesn't think, uh, Mommy and Daddy don't want me to jump on the couch because they're about my survival and flourishing. That's not what they think. And in fact, if you've never seen your three-year-old jump on the couch, you don't tell them not to jump on the couch because what you will do by telling them not to jump on the couch is inspire them to jump on the couch. <laughs> this is Parenting 101. So a wise parent figures out ways to lead their children away from even considering doing that 
without actually telling them not to do that. Because we know that the law, taking opportunity through the flesh, produces sinning of all kinds, right? When I was in sixth grade, my entire class participated in the D.A.R.E. program. D.A.R.E. stands for Drug Awareness Resistance Education. Uh, this program was led by a uniformed police officer wearing his gun badge and radio as he stood up in front of us for, I don't know, like six weeks, filling our minds with horror stories about the dangers of drug use. At the end of the drug awareness and resistance education uh, indoctrination camp, we all signed a contract that said we would never do drugs and sang songs about not doing drugs. By the end of my junior year, I'm pretty sure I was in the 5% of students who had not done drugs. Partly because what happens when you tell a bunch of preteens about the dangers of doing drugs, they're not stupid. They start thinking, well, why would anybody do drugs? And the law produces in them sinning of all kinds. It takes an opportunity through the flesh. So Paul is answering the question, if the law doesn't exist as a means for us to be justified, if the law is not a means for us to become righteous in God's sight, then why does it even exist? And his first answer is, it was added because of transgressions. Well, that's not very helpful because we don't talk that way. We don't know what that means. Let me translate it into modern English. The law was given to show us exactly how sinful we are. Every time we hear it and discover in ourselves a corresponding desire to do the opposite of it, it's a reminder to us, eh, I'm in pretty bad shape left to myself. Every time the law comes in, it produces in the human heart rebellion and law-breaking. Teenagers don't want to do drugs until you tell them they can't do drugs. Small children aren't consumed with a desire to jump on the couch until you tell them not to. And I didn't desperately want to go maskless until the government told me I had to wear one. And man, did I make it a moral ind ind indignation, personally. If I could go back in time, I would change a few things that I did. In effect, what Paul is saying is that the law was given so that we would begin to discover how sinful we are. That's what it does. Effectively, the human heart is like an idea shop of ways we can be wicked. So look at verse 21, back in Galatians 3. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Okay, great question. If all the law does is make us more sinful, why would God do that? Why not just keep the law to himself so that we're not made more sinful by it? Isn't giving us the law contrary to the covenant heart of God? Well, he's glad you asked. <clears throat> Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Knowing that we would begin to take it too far and imagine that the problem is the law rather than our own hearts, Paul takes us to the next step. Like a Chinese finger trap. Oh, I should have... Yeah. I've used Chinese finger traps as an example with my kids enough times that Lisa finally ordered some. Because they were like, what? 
what? I'm like, yeah, you put your fingers in there, the harder you pull, the tighter it squeezes. And they're like, what? So she ordered some. We have them. I should have brought one. Anyway, like a Chinese finger trap, the law, the more you try to keep it, the harder it squeezes. So look at, look at Luke 18. Verse 18, a ruler, we call him the rich young ruler, asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And he said, all these I've kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Listen to me. This is not a lesson on the evils of having money. That's not the point. I'll tell you what the point is. So now you're going to get a free Luke 18, 18 sermon on top of Galatians 3. When Paul says in Romans 7, the law killed me, this is what he's talking about. Try as I might to keep it. All I really do is break it. This rich man had convinced himself that he was actually doing a pretty good job of keeping the law. Jesus says, you want to know how to get eternal life? You know the commandments. Keep them. And he's like, no problem. I've been doing that from my youth. But Jesus tightens the noose. He goes to the man's idol. Quit loving money and follow me instead. Be in relationship with me instead of whatever it is that you're doing. Lay that down and be in relationship with Jesus Christ. Well, before this, the ruler was alive. He was a law keeper and he was doing pretty well. He just wanted Jesus to confirm what he already knew. You're nailing it, man. You're doing a great job of keeping the law. Don't worry. Keep it up. But the law comes in and it kills him and he becomes sad. Because the requirement of the law, which issued forth from the Lord Jesus Christ's mouth, was this. Put aside what you're consumed with and be in relationship with me. And he couldn't do it. Why? He was one who had much of what he loved. Before faith came... This is back in Galatians 3. We were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. 
There's neither male and there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus, and if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. So before faith, and if you don't have faith, this is still you, before faith, we were held captive. Every effort to keep the law just squeezed out of you more sin, more rebellion, more failure. You had good days. Come on. You've had good, you've had good stretches of days. You've had days that turned into weeks that were pretty good. Kept the law for a month. Broke that habit for an entire year, maybe two. Walking in obedience in a way that God must have been so pleased with. And then one day, you went out on the balcony to look at your yard and saw Bathsheba across the street. You've had good days. Before you were under, the, under faith, you, you had this teacher, like a pedagogue, set in your life to guide you. When you get out of line, you get whipped. As long as you're in line, no whippings. Perfect. Nobody likes a whipping, so you keep yourself in line. And then the teacher tells you, hey, you're going to stumble. You're about to get sifted like wheat. Not me. Though all others deny you, teacher, I won't. So when they come for the teacher, you pull out a sword and cut off one of their ears because you're going to stand fast. You're going to obey. Three hours later, you are turning the atmosphere blue with cursing, telling a servant girl, you've never met that man. This is how we are under the law. This is who we are under the law. Back and forth, obedient, disobedient, obedient, disobedient, obedient, disobedient. And in those pits of licentiousness or legalism is nothing but profound, debilitating despair. And what Jesus is calling us to is just be in relationship with me. I know you don't believe me. I I know that, that, like, I I have to ask you to take a break from your very good doctrine. See if you can. Just assume that I'm a false teacher, but imagine in your mind for just a moment that I'm not and that what I'm saying is true, all right? And just go on a little imaginary journey with me. This is a true statement. What would it mean for your heart? What would it mean for your heart if this were a true statement? And I know you won't agree with this, dear poor legalist. I know you won't listen to me, but try. Imagine for just a second that this is true. God delights in you. What if that were true? What what would it mean for your heart? How would this change your approach to life? When God thinks of you, his face is filled with joy. When he sees you living your day-to-day life, it fills his heart with pleasure. When he looks at you, he sees a delightful son 
or a beautiful daughter. He loves, loves being in your company. He loves hearing your prayers. Like he likes it when you pray. What if that was true? What if you had given up law keeping in favor of genuine relationship with the lawgiver? Because it was never the intention of the law to make you righteous. What if that were true? Would that change your relationship with the law? If God delighted in you, if he loved you so unspeakably much that he gave his only son to redeem you from sin, would that change your relationship with the law? Licentious person who just loves to run into sin and then wipe your mouth and say you've done no wrong because Jesus will take care of it, it doesn't matter. Wouldn't it make you a little bit more reticent to live that way if you knew it took you out of relationship with the one who does redeem you from that behavior? Wouldn't it make you pause for just a second before you run into sin if you thought, wait, the the father who made me in heaven is smiling at me right now, calling me to climb up in his lap like a little son or a little daughter and just talk with him. You don't have to go running into that sin. He loves you. What if that was true? Would it change your relationship with the law and would it change your relationship with the lawgiver? What if your obedience flowed from a grateful, childlike heart rather than a heart filled with fear and shame and guilt? Let's pray.